please open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 14. This morning, we're going to zoom in on the sixth and perhaps most famous I am statement in John's gospel. Let me set the stage for you. This declaration of John, or in the book of John, by Jesus, occurs just after Jesus has spent an entire week condemning the most powerful people in Jerusalem. He has flipped over the tables of the money changers. He has consistently bested the temple debates where he has been confronted by Pharisees and Sadducees and lawyers and all sorts of other people who have desired to conflict with him. He has publicly referred to the Pharisees on seven occasions as hypocrites. And not only that, He has also called them blind guides, whitewashed tombs, a brood of vipers. He has said that they are greedy, self-indulgent, self-righteous, and children of hell. Where I'm from, we say, them's fighting words. Jesus did not hold back. And tensions are high. I think everyone in Jerusalem felt that tensions were high. If you think tensions in our country are high right now, you cannot compare that to what was occurring in Jerusalem during these days. The disciples were on high alert. And although we don't know this for sure, I think it is reasonable to think that on one of these days during this week, it is when Peter went out and purchased a sword. Actually, we know that two disciples had purchased swords. We see that two of them had them. But That is what caused Peter to eventually have a sword when he was able to pull that out and use it as a weapon of war against those who would arrest Jesus that night. But then Jesus takes his disciples into this upper room. We talked already with Gideon's explanation of that upper room discourse where he shared with them about the fact that he was going to the cross when he said, this is my body and blood. What else could he be talking about? but certainly they don't understand at this point. But they know something is going on. They know that something is off. They know that this is not the way Jesus normally speaks. What does he mean that his body and blood are going to be broken and poured out? Not only that, Jesus washes their feet, and when he finishes with his speeches, he says something that's equivalent to dropping an atomic bomb into the middle of their conversation when he says to them, By the way, one of you is going to betray me. Then he dismissed Judas, who no one seems to suspect. So now everybody is looking around the room, and they are wondering, wait, is is it you? Is it me? And then Peter, he's the only one who stands up and says, it's not me. It could be any of them. Looking over there, Thomas. It's not me. I would die before I would betray you. And Peter, wanting to make everyone aware of his commitment, says that, Lord, I would go to my own grave before betraying you. And Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Imagine the tension in the room at this point. Everybody is on high alert. The disciples can surely sense that Jesus himself is deeply troubled. It says in John 12, 17 and in John 13, 31 that Jesus was deeply troubled. I think they knew that. The air is filled at this point with a mixture of fear and confusion and distrust. And to put it mildly, their hearts are troubled. And it's at this point that we come to the text for our discussion today. Even though our focus is going to be on verse 6, I think it would be valuable for us today to hear verses 
1 through 6 so that we might better understand the context of what's going on here in God's word. Let me read that for you now. Let not your hearts be troubled. (laughs) Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Lord, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was displayed in glory, you spoke to the disciples and you said to them, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. God, that's what we want to do today. We desire to hear your son through the word. And Lord, as I preach today, I ask, Lord, that you would allow me to be an honest and truthful and clear and accurate conduit for the voice of Jesus Christ. May I fade away and may he be preeminent. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In order to best serve you, what we're going to do is to break this passage down into smaller pieces so that we can understand best what Jesus means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I have simply five points for you. Point number one, I am. Point number two, the. Point number three, way. Point number four, truth. And point number five, life. Point number one, Jesus says, I am. As you probably know, when Jesus says, I am, He is using the most revered name of God. He says, ego eimi in Greek, I am. For those who are in Christ, we are going to be mining out the meaning of this phrase, this name, I am, for the rest of eternity. But I want to point out two aspects of great significance in relation to this text. First of all, the name I am highlights the eternality and the immutability of God. Jesus is not just saying, look, this is what I am like right now, or this is what I have become. No, he is saying, this is who I am, this is who I have been, and this is who I always will be. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He did not just become the good shepherd when he was born in Bethlehem or when he led these disciples around. Was he not already the good shepherd when David says, the Lord is my shepherd all the way back in Psalm 23? Was he not already the good shepherd when he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve? He has always been the good shepherd. This is why Jesus replies the way that he does to Philip. Look with me down to verse eight. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me 
that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying that he and the Father are eternally consistent and perfectly united in their attributes and in their character and in their purposes. I highlight this because Jesus is declaring this I am statement, not just to these people in this room during that time. He is saying this as a declaration for all people and all ages. It does not change. He is now and forever will be the way, the truth, and the life. Secondly, about I am, I want you to notice that for every I am statement, there is an I will. Sometimes these connections are very clearly stated. Sometimes they are implied. The first time God revealed his divine name, I am, he gave that name to Moses through the voice of a burning bush. And he said, I am. And he said, directly following his revelation of his name, he said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I will stretch out my hand to strike Egypt with wonders. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In fact, there are actually seven more I will statements going through the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four in that conversation in Exodus. He cannot say I will unless he firmly roots it in I am. God always acts in accordance with his character. We see this very clearly in the I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. For example, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you see the connection here? I am the ontological, the being of Jesus is to be a good shepherd. Therefore, I will lay down my life. He does what he does because he is who he is. His identity is the cause of his action. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The implied I will here is that he says, I will raise them to life because of my nature as the resurrection and the life. You're probably wondering, I get it. Like, why are you belaboring this point so long? You can move forward. I understand. I belabor this simply because I think that most of us have relegated this I am statement to the realm of apologetics and the defense of the faith, and we have failed to understand the I will of this I am statement. Jesus is not speaking to unbelievers in chapter 14. He is not speaking to the Pharisees. He is not speaking to a group of atheistic college students or religious pluralists or Oprah or Reza Aslan. He is speaking to his own disciples. And the message that Jesus is getting at here is one of peace and internal spiritual comfort. The disciples are deeply troubled and Jesus knows that and he knows it's going to get harder for them before the night is over. He loves them, so he tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. I think many of us have troubled hearts. I think I often have a troubled heart. I don't need to catalog the concerning events of 2020. I don't have time to do that. I don't have time right now to catalog even a tenth of the concerning events of this calendar week. I think we're troubled people. We look at the world around us, we see the troubled times, and I think we have troubled hearts. We need to be reminded that Jesus went to the cross so that he could go and prepare a place for us. This world is not our home. That is why Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then he just adds this little tag. He says, and, and you know the way to where I'm going. I think Thomas has a panic attack at this point. We don't hear a lot from Thomas in the Gospels. He's pretty, he's pretty quiet. But here, he, he can't help it. He just bursts out. And I think you can see and sense the panic in his voice. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He desires to be with Christ, but he has no comprehension of what is taking place in this conversation. And this is when Jesus says to him in response, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what is the I will of this I am statement? What is it that Jesus is intending to imply through this acknowledgement of his identity? It is this. Simply put, that we might find our peace and our comfort in Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus resolves this whole conversation down in verse 27 by saying, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you're a Christian, here's what I want to do for you. I intend to spend the rest of today's sermon pointing you to the glorious realities of comfort that are to be found here in this I am statement of Jesus Christ. But if you don't know Jesus, I want you to see that there is a sharp line being drawn in the sand. If you are not a Christian, there is a demarcation that is occurring here. If you are not in Christ, there is no comfort to be found. There is no peace. There is no fulfillment. There is no satisfaction in life without him. So in love, I want to point you to the only place where you can find true peace. So now we arrive at point number two. It's going to be the shortest of all of our points tonight, but please do not mistake brevity for insignificance. This is highly important. This is one word that so many people who oppose the gospel will circle it and cross it out and seek to remove it from the gospel itself. It is the word the. Who knew that the most commonly used word in any human language would be so radically and powerfully divisive. By using the definitive article here, the word the, I am the way, the truth, the life. By using the word the, Jesus is eliminating every other philosophy, every other religion, every other system of beliefs. He is eliminating all of it from view. So he says, let God be true and every man a liar. Most people don't care if you believe in God. Most people don't care at all what your perspective on God is as long as you don't mess with their system of beliefs or impose anything on them, they could care less what your thoughts about God really are. But once you begin speaking about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that he is the only way to God, that is when they consider you and your beliefs to be downright hateful. Exclusivity, though, is only bad news for those people who believe in a plurality of ways to God. They believe that there are many avenues to God, so the notion of one way seems wickedly limited to those people. But to those of us who know that there is no one righteous, no, not one, we know that there is no way to God. There is no way to approach him. There is no right that we have in and of ourselves to come before him. Without Christ, there is no hope of ever making it to heaven. So for us, the word the 
is actually a delight and a precious joy because if Jesus had not come, if he did not die for his people, he would have to say, there is no way. Philip says, how do we get there? We don't know the way. I'm sorry, Philip, there is no way. That is the only alternative. Without Christ, there is no way, but he has come to make a way, to be the way, the only way to the Father. The world hates that we hold dear Christ's exclusivity. They usually use the term narrow or narrow-minded. Please understand that they're right. But we are not narrow because we seek to keep people out. We are narrow because we know that that is precisely the only way that they can get in. We want to be exactly as narrow as Christ teaches us to be. Which leads us now to our last three points, the way, truth, and life. But before we get to any of them, I want to make sure you understand that it is difficult to explain these three words apart from one another. This trio of what one scholar calls divine superlatives are irreducibly complex. They make sense because of one another. They hold each other together. When stated apart from one another, they still are true, but they are true because of one another. Simply put, There's a lot of overlap here, so it's difficult to speak just about one of them without speaking about the others, but we're going to do our best to break them apart and consider each one aspect at a time. Let's consider the way. Jesus says, I am the way. He declares that he is going to heaven, and Thomas is looking for a map. Give me an atlas. How do I get there? He wants directions. But instead of laying out some detailed list of responsibilities or the ways that you turn yourself through life in order to make it, or duties that must be performed, Jesus simply says, I am the way. That's me. How do you get there? Me. I am your road. One scholar rightly suggests that the way that seems right to a man can be broken into two categories. You have religious people and you have irreligious people. Let's consider both of these in turn. First, religious people. Who are these people? Allow me to use a well-worn metaphor that's been used by pastors for at least the last two centuries. Here's heaven over here, and here's earth over here. And there's a great chasm in between, and nobody can ever pass from earth to heaven. You cannot do it. Every system of religion or religiosity, every single one of them is a chaotic attempt to cross that chasm to get from earth into heaven. And you try to do that through religion apart from Christ. That is religiosity. All of these religions appear different. One is building an airplane, trying to get across. Another one is trying to like make a zip line or a cannon to shoot themselves across. But the core of each of these religions is the same. It is an effort to earn God's acceptance in one way or another. People will use a combination of the following kinds of works in order to convince themselves that they are going to make it to heaven or that they are a good person. They will use philanthropy, service, ceremony, comparison, comprehension. They will use decision, restitution, affliction, meditation, or seeking affirmation. They will use any of those roads to say, I have done enough to get to God. Every single religion is a mixture of those ingredients. Every religion is propelled by the notion that they can somehow find acceptance from God by doing something. Fill in the blank. Each system finds its own form and expression in their attempt to prove themselves. Look how good I am. 
I want to submit for your consideration that this is one of the two greatest forms of idolatry and expressions of self-worship in the entire universe. Consider what these religions are doing. They are saying, I am capable of being worthy of God's adoration. I can do enough to deserve God's love. I am so good that God should look at me and say, wow, and I, I need that guy on my team. Religion is a way for us to say, God, see my greatness. Every system of belief outside of Christianity is a desperate attempt to diminish God's holiness to a standard that we find attainable and to elevate ourselves to a level of being divine. We don't have time to survey all of these religions, but Islam and Roman Catholicism and Hinduism and Christless Judaism and animism and Mormonism and moralistic therapeutic deism, these are all expressions of the same idolatrous thinking that we can earn or buy our way to God with our works. I am not accepted in the beloved, we say. I am accepted because of me. I get in because of my personal goodness. To state it succinctly, Religiosity is when we say, I am the way. How are you going to get to heaven? If you add one work of yours to this path to heaven, you are saying, I am the way there. I am the map. I am the path. That is idolatry. That is self-worship. Steve, Pastor Steve Schultz, has recently shared with us that he has interviewed people for jobs at Grace Christian And he asks them all the same question. If you were to stand before God right now and he were to ask you, why should I allow you into heaven? What would you say? And he has been disheartened that many people have said something to the extent of, I think I've done everything that you've asked me to do. That is self-worship. That is idolatry. The Bible says in Romans 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. God's standard is not arbitrary. It is an expression of his holiness. It is a standard that I cannot achieve. I cannot attain. I cannot ever meet his requirements. So I can never earn or deserve his love. It is unadulterated idolatry to think that I am capable of being worthy of God's love or deserving of heaven. But there is also a second group of people, and we're going to call them irreligious people. And this is a growing number of people in our society today. Irreligious people are the other side of the coin. This is the other expression of self-worship and self-idolatry. These people either do not believe God exists, or they think so little of God that they don't even bother attempting to reach heaven. It's nothing more than a tickling in the back of their mind. Oh yeah, maybe I should go to church or something. Their lives scream out, I don't believe God's going to judge me. Therefore, my highest goal in my life is to serve myself. I just want what I want, and I want it now. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I will find satisfaction for my life no matter what it takes. Philippians 3.19 describes them this way. Paul says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What does that mean? It means they are controlled by their lusts and for their desires for satisfaction. At the core, religious people and irreligious people are equally wicked. Religiosity and irreligiosity are twin sister idolatries. In fact, most people that you and I know 
operate in a bipolar way, constantly vacillating between religion and irreligion. Most people operate out of a system of religion, maybe one or two days a year, maybe once a week. But then when somebody dies or feels guilty, they'll, they'll, they'll turn their mind for a moment to God. But the rest of their life is marked by a complete ambivalence to God and a complete rejection of his law. So here's heaven and here's earth. There's a great chasm between. And Jesus says in John 3, 13, no one has ascended into heaven. No one has ascended into heaven. You have not done it. No one who has gone before you in death has ever done it. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Jesus came the other direction. He went from heaven, the place of pure satisfaction and joy, and he came here to earth. We have been attempting through all of our efforts and work to somehow gain our way there. And he says, I will come and get you. God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin on the cross. Thereby, he became the bridge to heaven for all who would believe. So stop trying to build a plane when Jesus has provided himself as the bridge. He is the way. Christian, does this not comfort you? Does this not give you joy knowing that I have a way, there is a way, one way, Jesus, my way to heaven? That's why the early Christians called themselves the people of the way. Point number four, truth. Uh, there's a very interesting formula that arises as you read through the book of John. In John chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Here we see that Jesus equals the word. And then we see here in our verse today that John 14, six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. So here we see Jesus is the truth. Later in John 17, 17, Jesus prays to the Father and says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus equals the word in the book of John. Jesus equals the truth in the book of John. And Jesus equals the word and the word equals truth. According to John 17, 17, Jesus equals the word equals truth. They are synonymous with one another as we understand them here in this book. Every word of the Bible reveals to us the person of Jesus Christ, and he is the one who narrates to us the Father. Jesus also teaches us in John 8, 32, that the truth will set you free. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer in bondage to the schemes of the world. And when you come to the word of God, the Spirit will reveal Christ to you as real treasure. This will naturally result in a radical transformation of your priorities. It will overhaul your life in such a way that it will affect everything that you do. It will affect how you eat. It will affect what you watch. It will affect how you spend your time and your money. It will, affect how you, it will it, it change how you treat people and how you think of people and everything else in between because you realize that true satisfaction comes not from this world or stuff. It comes from knowing Christ and living for him. Does it not comfort you to know that he is the truth? Point number five, life. The Bible teaches us that when you're born, you are born physically alive, but spiritually you are a stillborn. The spiritual part of you is dead. But the good news of the gospel is that even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. If you are saved, then you have eternal life. 
If you are saved, you are not looking forward to eternal life. You now, currently, in this present tense, are experiencing eternal life. Eternal life does not begin when you close your eyes in death. Your eternal life began the moment that you understood the gospel and the Lord brought you to life. When we see that he changed you from dead to a new creation, God caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He caused you to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, Peter says. But beyond the great joy of just giving us life, beyond the great idea that he has just wrapped up this present of life for you and handed it to you, he says, I am your life. Consider the words of Colossians 3, 4. Here, Paul writes, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Sometimes, the Bible authors will do this thing that just blows me away. They will, they will add a parenthetical statement, and I'm sure you know what that means. A parenthetical statement is one that you could completely remove, and the main thrust, the theme of the sentence would not change. The meaning of the sentence would not change. It is just an added statement, a declaration of truth that he includes here. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Almost like a side note here. That blows me away. It is my favorite parenthetical statement in the scriptures. Who is your life? He says, Christ is your life. Jesus is the source of all true life. Later in John chapter 15, he will describe himself as the vine and us as the branches. That means that any source of life that flows to, to us must come from him and nowhere else. Without him, you can do nothing. And if you are in Christ, you are so united to him that your life has been hidden with Christ in God, it says in Colossians 3. Do you realize what that means? It means that in order for you to lose your life, in order for your eternal life to end, God himself would have to end. It is hidden with Christ in God, the most protected place you can possibly comprehend and even greater. This is what Jesus is getting at in his conversation with the disciples when he says in John 14, 20, I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. In other words, you are safe with me because we are protected in the Father. In verse 19, Jesus told the disciples, because I live, you also will live. Jesus says, I am the life. Does this not give you peace? So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And because this is true, there is no alternate route to the Father. There is no mountain with multiple paths to the top. We must come by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ must save and Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of Jesus who gives us much comfort. We thank you that he is our way, that he is our avenue. He is our bridge to you. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus is truth. Not only everything he said, but everything he is, is truth. We thank you, Lord, that he is life and that any life that we can seek to find, we can only find in him. We thank you that he has given us himself, has given us life eternal. Lord, we pray that you would help us 
today as we navigate in this world where we are so easily distracted, we are so easily troubled. We pray, Lord, that you would cause our hearts to be enriched and encouraged, knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.